Well, if I were to offer you a great deal on boring, flavorless spices, would you accept my offer? Okay, good. Most of you said no. Now, Canadians probably would. And I can say this, not because I'm rude to Canadians, but it's based on the flavor difference between buying a, an old El Paso taco seasoning packet in Canada versus an old El Paso taco seasoning packet in America. You would not think they are different, but they are. One of them has no flavor. <laughs> but that is a story for another day. Fortunately, most of you, I can tell, not keen on my offer of flavorless spices, which is too bad because recently I had some available. On the last day of our mission trip to Southeast Asia last summer, we went shopping. And since I do not want to buy stuff that is going to clutter up our house, I've spent years doing that. I'm trying to stop that. Uh, I bought some seasoning instead to bring home because Melanie loves to cook. And I, I bought some packets to prepare their style of fried rice, and those came out great, so very good. But, but I also bought an inexpensive container of ground cinnamon, and, and unfortunately, when we used it, it was extremely boring. It had very little cinnamon flavor. It had no bite whatsoever. So, so what do you think we did with it? We tossed it, yes. We threw it away. Uh, my carefully imported flavorless spice that was wasting space on the pantry went in the garbage can. By contrast, when we were in Jerusalem last week, Melanie used some of our free time to, to go visit a spice shop in the old city. And what I think is an admirable display of restraint, she only bought three different kinds of spices. She admitted she could have bought everything. Uh, and she started using them. Why? Because they taste good, right? Ultimately, the essential difference between, a, between a, a spice you keep and a spice you throw away is, does it do a good job flavoring whatever it is you bought it to flavor? If not, it's worthless. If so, great. Now, last week, we talked about the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, right? The most famous sermon that Jesus ever gave, at least to our 21st century eyes. And we're working through the Sermon on the Mount on Sunday mornings to emphasize what it looks like to really follow Jesus. Because the Sermon on the Mount is his most detailed teaching, I think, about what it looks like to follow him and to live as a citizen of God's kingdom here on earth. But right after the Beatitudes, I mean immediately after the Beatitudes, no commercial break or anything, Jesus taught about how to live in light of them. And his message is essentially what I just said about spices. As kingdom citizens who have been radically transformed by Christ's saving work and Holy Spirit, we must live out the purpose God made us for or else we're wasting our new lives in Jesus Christ. And so our passage today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You 
are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Salt and light. Two metaphors for what we already are in Jesus Christ. Right? Let's be clear. Jesus isn't talking about what we should aspire to be someday. He's telling us what we already are in him. And then the question becomes whether we're actually doing what salt and light are meant to do. Will we do what God has made us new in his son to do in this fallen world? That's the question we really need to wrestle with. Will you? Will I? I want to encourage you to, to answer that question by living out three principles. First, since you're salt, be salty. Distinctively flavoring and preserving our culture. Right? Jesus compares us to salt in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, we don't tend to think very much of salt. We use it heavily, but we don't think much about it. You go to the store, it costs next to nothing. It's everywhere. But in the ancient world, salt was precious. Right? Jesus isn't comparing us to, to a relatively worthless thing that's on every table at every restaurant and every home. He's comparing us to something that was quite precious. Indeed, our English word salary comes from a Latin word meaning salt money, the money that was given to soldiers to buy salt. And salt was extremely valuable for two reasons. Now, the minor reason is the one you would probably jump at, flavor. All right? Salt gives food a very distinct and tasty flavor that every American knows and loves and uses too much of? It's okay, to be honest, we're in church. But the major reason that salt was precious, its real, true, lasting value in the ancient world, was that it preserved food in a world without electric refrigeration. What made salt so precious, so precious that people were, were willing to get paid in it, was that it prevented corruption, rot, and ruin. Salt could keep food safe to eat for long periods of time in a world without freezers, refrigerators, fast food establishments, or Costco. But if salt didn't actually add flavor or preserve food for long periods of time, it would be worthless. It's just another rock at that point. Now, salt is always salt. Salt doesn't wear out in and of itself, but 
But it can easily get too much other junk mixed in with it. Other minerals, miscellaneous minerals, they did not typically have the purity of salt then that we have access to today. And if that happened, if too much of other junk got mixed in with the salt, well, then the salt had no value. It was just another bit of garbage, another rock to toss in the street with all the other trash. And the point that Jesus is making is that if you're a follower of his, do what he made you to do, right? And the point is not to threaten you and say, well, if you don't do it, Jesus is going to throw you out. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is do what you're made to do. Don't let too much other garbage mix in with you such that you are not doing what you were made to do. So, so he is telling us, you and me, to do the work of salt, flavoring and preserving the culture around us. You see, Christians should have a distinctive and good flavor, if you will, not to be eaten, but rather that we are viewed and understood as having a positive contribution in our societies, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods. There's a reason that Jesus teaches this immediately after the Beatitudes. Because if we're actually living by those standards, right? And we talked about last week, a lot of times Christians are good at ignoring the Beatitudes and being like, doesn't apply here. But if we take Jesus seriously, and I'd like to hope we will, then we need to live by those Beatitudes. And if we're living by the Beatitudes, well, well we're going to look very different from everyone else. If we are truly poor in spirit and we're mourning the brokenness of the world and we're putting the interests of others first and we're desperate for righteousness in ourselves and we're truly merciful towards others and we're pure in heart and making peace where there is conflict then, and we are ready to be persecuted for the name and sake of Jesus, we will definitely be very different from the world. D.A. Carson writes, it's impossible to follow the norms of the kingdom in a purely private way. The righteousness of the life you live will attract attention even if that attention regularly takes the form of opposition. The tragedy of modern Western Christianity is that most of us aren't particularly different from our unbelieving neighbors. Not really. If you were Amazon Alexa and you were snooping in every house across America, as it does... Would there be anything really substantively different about Christian homes from non-Christian homes? And the sad part is that for the by and large, no. But Jesus says we need to be different. Otherwise, what's the point? We're supposed to be part of God's plan to bring healing, restoration, and reconciliation into this fallen, broken world. As salt, we must serve the advance of God's kingdom against the rot and corruption that is so visible in the world around us. You might have noticed that some stuff is pretty bad in this world. Well, Jesus says we're supposed to help fix it. 
Now, he's the ultimate fix. We know that. We can't save the world. He saves the world. But we are called to be a positive flavoring and preservative in our world. And there are many ways that plays out. For example, we live in a society that absolutely doesn't value human life. All right, whether we like to admit it or not, right? Our entire entertainment industry, by and large, is built on depictions and simulations and delight in ending human lives, whether it's video games or action movies or anything else, right? We build so much of our entertainment on the worthlessness of human life. Our culture increasingly views both children and the elderly as terribly inconvenient and lacking in inherent value. It's in our humor, right? It's in our politics. It's in every, it manifests in so many ways, right? If you're, you know, if you're a reasonably young adult, what most, you know, if you talk about kids, what are a lot of the jokes about? The inconvenience of it all instead of the preciousness of lives made in God's image. Our society sinfully considers unborn children who are made in God's image to be a choice. Well, as salt, we are to be pushing back against this decay in our culture, not so much by changing the government as by introducing people who are far from God to him so that they learn how precious every human life is because it carries his image, born and unborn, and how precious every life is to the author of life. Right? We change people by introducing him to the one who changes them. And then they come to understand. Likewise, we live in a society dead set on rejecting God's good design for family and human sexuality that delights in that rejection and, and insists that everyone celebrate and affirm rebellion. And as salt, we must work against cultural decay, not through legislation or angry rhetoric, but through the loving proclamation of God's good news and plan that he has better things than we can imagine if we would just listen to him. We live in a society that's greedy, power-hungry, self-centered, entertained to death, and very distant from God. And as salt, we must work to prevent such decay in our culture, and not by loud denunciations of it or by acting in exactly the same way, but through the loving demonstration of God's higher purpose for life. As salt, we need to be willing to take firm stands on issues that matter to Jesus, and those stands are going to be unpopular. But to do that, we must educate ourselves and understand Christ's perspective on the issues of our day and not just delegate that out and let ourselves be influenced by our, our gut or our preferred news outlet or our favorite influencer or podcaster or even our favorite politician. 
We need to understand Christ's view on the topics of the day and then be willing to pray, speak up, and work to advance Christ's kingdom agenda here on earth, no matter the cost. D.A. Carson writes, for a variety of reasons, Christians have lost this vision of witness and are slow to return to it. But in better days at other lands, the faithful and divinely empowered proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ so transformed men that they in turn became the light of the world. Prison reform, medical care, trade unions, control of a perverted and perverting liquor trade, abolition of slavery, abolition of child labor, establishment of orphanages, reform of the penal code. In all these areas, the follower of, followers of Jesus spearheaded the drive for righteousness. The darkness was alleviated. And this, I submit, has always been the pattern when professing Christians have been less concerned with personal prestige and more concerned with the norms of the kingdom. That's what it means to be salt. You and I are salt. It's not something we can put on our list or like, I'll get around to being salt when I have more time. I'll get around to being salt when I retire. I'll get around to being salt when life settles down. No, none of that. You are salt if Jesus is your Lord and Savior. You and I are salt, and we must be distinctively flavoring and preserving our culture right now in 2023. Second, since you're light, be light, illuminating a dark world. Verses 14 and 15 continue. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. The world in which we live is very dark. That darkness is evident all around us in the form of war, poverty, disease, injustice, abuse of power, violence, greed, ungodliness, racism, and every other form of sin imaginable. And the world is dark because we've sinned. We've all sinned, as has every human, back to our first ancestors. And this is what has darkened the world. But Jesus is the light of the world. This is what he declared in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. We'll have the light of life. Jesus is pure light. There is no sin. There is no hint of darkness in him. There is no shadow. And as the light of the world, he came to, to rescue us from this darkness that we've joyfully brought on ourselves through sin. The darkness of our own ongoing rebellion against God's will and plan and good design for this world. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, and he stepped into our world as a human baby, taking on a human body and a human nature in order to bring light. He taught the truths of God. He worked the miracles of God because he was God come in the flesh. And he lived without ever sitting, despite being tempted in every way imaginable. And then Jesus gave himself over to be crucified on a cross. To die as an innocent sacrifice, to pay the penalty for our sins, because the penalty for sin against the holy creator of the universe and the source of all life is always death. 
Jesus died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. So that everyone who trusts in him as Lord and Savior will be forgiven their sins, made new in him, united with him, adopted by God the Father, and sealed by the Holy Spirit. And if you have made that choice, and Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then he has news for you. You are the light of the world. You shine his light because you are in union with him. And as the light of the world, right, go ahead and, and, and just get used to that. You don't get to delegate it off. Right? You are the light of the world. And, and to help you understand your responsibility, Jesus offers two analogies. So you can understand what you and I are supposed to be doing in a dark, rotten world. And, and to see how foolish it is for his people to shirk our responsibilities. The first the comparison is of a city built on top of a hill, as Jerusalem was. And in the pitch black darkness of night, in those many centuries before electricity, you could see the fires that lit a city that was elevated up on a hill for miles and miles around. It may not make it bright outside, but it, the, that absolute darkness was no longer so dark. And people were drawn to the light. We can still see a similar effect today in satellite images taken at night from space when you see the cities are blobs of light and then there's darkness all around. Right? A light, a city on a hill is dramatic in terms of bringing light in a dark place. The second analogy is of a lamp. Now, in first century homes, you didn't have overhead lighting. Instead, the household's lamps would be set high on a stand or an interior wall so that, that light would reach every corner. And lights would never be covered up, hidden or snuffed out, because that would be dumb. And Jesus said, don't be dumb if you take nothing else away today. Jesus said, don't be dumb. We're the light of the world, and we aren't supposed to hide that. We're supposed to help bring light into a dark world, a dark society, a dark culture. So don't hide the light that Jesus has filled you with. Live it visibly. So let me ask, do people know you're different? <laughs> yeah, I see some of you nodding. And do they know why you're different? For the young among us, those in school, those working in secular workplaces, there is increasing pressure to conform to our culture's ideology, especially around issues of gender and sexuality. But, but Christians are supposed to be different. We need to love everyone well, but that includes loving them enough to speak God's truth about every subject including the truth that he has better plans for his creation than to, to let us or any of his image bearers be defined by false beliefs about themselves or, or uncontrolled sexual behaviors. So how will you handle that as the light of the world? I pray that we will all choose to shine our light so that others will come to know Jesus as he commands us in verse 16. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The way we shine in a dark world, looking very, very different in a good way, that's important, in a good way, is meant to draw people to God. We must invest in the development and and blessing of our culture and our world, shining the light of Jesus publicly, consistently, and persistently so that those who don't know Jesus will come to know him. Our mission as followers of Jesus is the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We're to make disciples of Jesus in all nations, and what Jesus says here in this passage is that doing good works has to be part of how we do that. Right? He's saying we don't just make disciples by direct evangelism. Now, we must do that, right? If we're only doing stuff and we're never talking about Jesus, they're never going to figure it out. But that in addition to our direct evangelism, we must also be doing good things in the name of Jesus that make it clear to non-believers, including those who over the years have come to believe that what the church has to say is not only, not only wrong, but hurtful. We've got to convince them that the good news of Jesus Christ really is good news. So we must reveal God's love by our words and our actions. And this is what it means to be salt and light. If you're a follower of Jesus, then then Christ needs to radiate in your words and your actions and your attitudes. Christ's light must radiate through tangible actions that bless others and by words that love and hope and comfort. So those far from God will see your good works and realize God is real. God is good, God loves them, and God is worthy of worship. You and I are part of God's plan to make his name famous here in Prince William County and to the ends of the earth. So what does that look like? Now, there are many things in many ways, but but to help you organize them, let me suggest a familiar abbreviation, PSL. I have good news. As a Christian, it's always PSL season. Now, what's PSL? Come on, you live in America. You have a Starbucks. What's PSL? There you go. Pumpkin spice latte. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Clearly, you need to be a little more in the world. but not of the world. Most people anticipate and celebrate PSL season when it opens up, which I notice gets earlier and earlier every year. I think it was like August this year. I'm like, really? But let me give you a different definition of PSL and encourage you again that for Christians, for us, it's always PSL season. Prayer, sharing, and love. Be salt and light in this world through prayer, sharing, and love. Be diligent about praying regularly to be salt and light, influencing and blessing your family, 
neighborhood, community, and workplace. Pray diligently because, let's face it, being salt and light is difficult, discouraging, unappreciated, opposed, and spiritual in nature. You and I can't stay salty and bright, shining light illuminating the world apart from God's Spirit working within us. So we need to be grounded in prayer, daily prayer, or more often, praying without ceasing. Ask God to reveal how you can shine Christ's light each day and pray for the opportunity to bring healing to our decaying culture. Pray daily for God to reveal how to be salt and light wherever you are and wherever God leads you. Pray for the courage to get involved in the hard problems of the world, to be like those English Christians long ago who prayed and battled for years to end the slave trade. And like those in America who prayed and battled for years for civil rights. Pray for God to give you daily opportunities to be salt and light and for those far from God to notice that you are distinctly different in a good way. Pray that they will be moved towards God by your words and actions. And then share. Share the good news of Jesus Christ. Share in a kind and respectful way God's perspective on important issues. Speak up boldly, kindly, and clearly about what and why you believe in Jesus, hope in Jesus, and trust in Jesus. And love. Do Nothing apart from love, right? You can disagree with people firmly in love. In America, we don't think that's true, but it's true. And we as Christians are not very good at it, and we need to get a lot better at it if we're going to be salt and light. Do nothing apart from love because that's what is supposed to be most distinctive about Christians. But if you were to do a, a good, quick Google search on why are Christians so... Loving is not usually in the top five or ten. So we got work to do. It's supposed to be what's most distinctive about us because Jesus said so. So love people like Jesus did and like he does today. And love those who are far from God. And go to them. Don't wait for them to come to you. Go to them. Demonstrate what real love looks like. What God's kingdom looks like. And share Jesus with them in love. Pray, share, and love. Now, I want to wrap up this morning by helping each of us focus that praying, sharing, and loving part through something that we call Who's Your One? And Who's Your One is a periodic emphasis. We bring it up from time to time to, to put it to the forefront of our minds to remind us to pray daily with specificity, to share Jesus with intentionality, and to love like Jesus with gracious generosity. And the idea of who's your one is very, very simple. You identify one person who doesn't believe in Jesus, and you commit to pray every day for that person and their salvation, and you commit to share Jesus with them in the near future. It's very simple, but it is effective, right? Last year, we baptized somebody's one. That was exciting. I look forward to baptizing some more ones this year. 
And sometimes we, we launch Who's Your One with a formal written commitment, but today I'm just going to ask you, to, to, inv- you to, to make that commitment wherever you are. So if you're in person, it's in your seat. If you're uh, online, it's where you are. If you're watching after the fact, it's wherever and whenever you are worshiping with us. So go ahead and take a minute to just ask God to put the name of one person on your heart who needs to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I'm going to be quiet for a moment, so just go ahead and do that now. Who does God want you to focus your prayers, your sharing, and your love on? And now I want you to commit to God, not me, God, that you will pray every day for your one to come to know Jesus. And that you'll intentionally share Jesus with them before Easter. Right? So I'm giving you a good amount of time, but I'm not giving you unlimited time. Can you do that? Are you ready to do it? Go ahead and make that commitment to God right now. I'm going to be quiet again. Commit to God that you're going to pray for this one person every day and that you will share Jesus with them by Easter. Salt and light. You're already salt and light because of what Jesus has done in and for you. I'm salt and light. You're salt and light. What we must each determine is whether we will do what we have been made, called, and commanded to do as salt and light, or whether we will let our culture, our flesh, our fear, or our comfort win out and dim our light and render us indistinguishable from the non-Christians who surround us. Which will you choose? Be salt and light. Let us pray. Father, we rejoice that indeed in Jesus Christ you have made us salt and light. That you have transformed our lives. You have made us new through faith in Jesus Christ, that our sins have been forgiven, that our guilt has been washed away, that our shame is no more. That Jesus Christ lives within us, that your spirit seals and indwells us, that you have adopted us as your beloved children. Lord, you have given us responsibility to live as your children, to live as image-bearing temples of the Holy Spirit everywhere we go, to be salt, flavoring, and, 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 and working against the corruption and rot we see in the culture around us, to be light in a dark world. So, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to be faithful. I lift up our ones. Help us to be faithful in bringing them to your altar every day in prayer. Help us be faithful in sharing good news with them. Help us be faithful in following Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.